Welcome and thank you for joining us for this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. This podcast is part of a series focused on sharing information with healthcare providers who are caring for patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Mary L. Jessup, Chief Science and Medical Officer of the American Heart Association with your Power Bite. Please listen to our podcast with Dr. Dan Roden, an electrophysiologist and worldwide authority on drug-induced lethal arrhythmias, including torsadepoint. He talks to us about the potential of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin and the combination used as treatment in COVID-19 and what we need to be on the lookout for and how to correct it if we find it. This is our AHA podcast discussing considerations for drug interactions on QTC in exploratory COVID-19 treatments. I'm so excited to be joined today by Dr. Dan Roden, a longtime AHA volunteer. Dr. Roden is the Senior Vice President for Personalized Medicine, the Interim Division Chief, Division of Cardiovascular Medicine, Clinical Cardiac Electrophysiology Program Faculty at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Roden. I want to talk about Torsade de Pain, and it has come up because of the potential side effects of some of the drugs that are being explored to treat COVID-19. So how do you and your community decide that a drug causes torsade de plan? What we ordinarily do is we rely initially on case reports that will be followed often by in vitro studies and examination of very large uh, adverse drug event uh, database reporting systems both run by the World Health Organization and by the FDA and like organizations in Europe. There's also a website called CredibleMeds.org, which many of us use, that categorizes these levels of evidence and places drugs into buckets of very high risk, high risk, medium risk, low risk, no risk. I think it's fair to say that in while the in vitro and clinical and epidemiologic data all show that both hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin can provoke arrhythmias, the risk is really pretty small. Nothing like some of the bad actors that we know about, like sotalol or dofetilide or methadone. What we don't know is what happens in the patient with COVID-19. So how do clinicians identify patients at risk? Well, some risk factors are pretty well known. Female sex is a, a risk factor. A hypokalemia is a risk factor. Underlying heart disease is a risk factor. Uh, I think recent conversion from atrial fibrillation is a risk factor, and, and many would agree with me there. And and then uh, a long QT at baseline, and that includes patients with the congenital long QT syndrome. So we're nearly not sure whether there's a strict cutoff beyond which you really shouldn't use a drug that has torsad potential. 500 milliseconds seems pretty reasonable or pretty generous, especially if uh, in a setting where you might be using a drug in a in a life-threatening situation. So all those things are, are things that, that we use ordinarily to identify somebody at increased risk. Do you think there's something special about the COVID-19 patient and their propensity to develop lethal arrhythmias, including torsade de plan? Well, uh, this is a pretty data-free zone right now. There, there are a number of causes for concern. So hypokalemia is pretty common in, in any intensive care unit. 
there's a, some evidence that systemic inflammation can also prolong the QT interval. Uh, fever is well known to cause some genetic arrhythmia syndromes to get worse, and there's a little bit of data that fever may also prolong the QT. The other thing that's special about the COVID-19 patients is that we really are trying to minimize exposure of healthcare providers to the patient and exposure of uh, portable equipment like ECG machines to the patient. So it may be very difficult or even impossible sometimes to actually measure the QT interval at baseline or certainly do the kind of serial QT measurements that we often do with other drugs. So we've already heard there are at least two large trials looking at the role of uh, hydroxychloroquine um, to treat or prevent COVID-19. Um, how should these people be monitored then? Well, uh, in, in a perfect world, and this is very, very far from a perfect world, we'd like to make sure that people uh, with high risk are, are not exposed to drug. And people with, um, uh, so that includes making sure the electrolytes are where we want them to be, cl potassium closer to five than four, and making sure the baseline QT interval isn't excessively long, say greater than 500 milliseconds or some number like that rate correct. Uh, as I said, ECG monitoring may not be feasible in the COVID-19 patients. So uh, looking at the baseline is, is probably the, uh, the best indicator uh, that we have. And uh, I, I guess I, I would say that right now we recognize that there's a risk with this drug and the risk is small but there. The, the early risk is probably uh, arrhythmias. The, there are other risks with chronic long-term treatment, which some people have advocated for, for this disease in certain settings. That includes uh, things like seizures and, and eye disorders. So what, we're, what we have is a drug where there's a lot of anecdotes that may have promise. Uh, there's not much controlled data at all uh, that there's a, a benefit, and yet we have a small risk. So until that risk-benefit equation gets sorted out, we probably need to be a little bit careful, understanding that patients who are in extremis, people often reach for things that may work or may not work, and, and that's human nature. Uh, what we really need is the results of those large randomized trials. So I realize that we're in uncharted territory, but there are now trials giving health workers who are asymptomatic hydroxychloroquine to see if they can prevent infection. Do you think every one of those people should be getting an ECG at baseline? I think a baseline ECG is a reasonable idea and doable in that situation. But um, you know what we would, what we often do when we bring somebody into the hospital to start uh, dofetilide, for example, is we'll get ECGs after each dose. That's impractical in this situation. So I think what you have to do is is make sure that people with long QT intervals at baseline are not are not exposed to the drug. The, the concern I would have with, with the long-term uh, effects have more to do with the other effects of hydroxychloroquine, which we haven't thought, sort of thought about very much, and that is the, the seizure effects, uh, interactions with other drugs, particularly the low seizure thresholds, and there are, is this concern about long-term ocular toxicity, particularly if people will be taking it for months. So that's the, uh, it's always about risk and benefit. So if, if the worst happens and a drug or drug combination is felt to have been uh, the cause of a lethal arrhythmia, specifically tersade de point, what should clinicians do next? Is it enough to just stop the drug or drugs that you're suspicious were the cause? 
So uh, one of the things that uh, the textbooks will say, it's very simple. You stop the drug, most times the arrhythmia goes away, and that's the end of that. The textbooks, unfortunately, I think are not uh, always taking care of real life patients. So what happens is you'll have a patient that's on many drugs and uh, and they have an episode of Torsad and they're a little hypokalemic and, and you don't know which drug it was and you don't know how much the other things that are going on in the patient contribute. So in the ideal world, you'd stop every drug that might be contributing. That includes antibiotics. It includes antipsychotics. It might include hydroxychloroquine. And then you'd see that the QT would return to normal. Uh, often these things are recurrent. Uh, and it may take several days, even after withdrawal of drugs, for the QT to start to return to normal. So uh, I advocate getting the potassium up to close to five. Uh, and uh, and then giving empiric magnesium, and when the arrhythmia recurs, giving more empiric magnesium. If you're still stuck, then then you go down the, the usual pathway of uh, transvenous pacing or isoproterenol to increase the heart rate. That's unusual, but again, in these critically ill patients, that can happen, I suppose. We'll see. Great. Now, is there anything specific about the combination of azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine that warrants concern? Well, from where I sit, the most the most pressing issue is whether whether that combination has any uh, efficacy or any superior efficacy to either drug alone for whatever it is it's being used for. But leaving that aside, they both have pretty clear arrhythmogenic potential uh, for from from case reports to epidemiologic studies to in vitro studies. The in vitro studies are sort of interesting because both of them have mechanisms associated with them in in vitro studies that look a little different from typical QT prolonging drugs, which usually act by blocking one specific potassium current in the heart. These drugs do more than that. So we really don't understand what the how they cause arrhythmias, and we really don't understand how they would cause arrhythmias together. So there's very little, there's no data on, on the combination of the two drugs in in vitro studies, for example. So let me conclude by giving you one more chance to help us. Is there anything else you think clinicians should know? When I, when I see what is going on in, in northern Italy or New York City, it's, it's pretty arrogant of me to tell people uh, who are on the front lines what they should or shouldn't be doing. Uh, the healthcare workers in those places uh, are doing a fantastic job under extraordinarily trying conditions. Um, for any drug that we ever use, uh, the rules are the same. You, you would have to assume that benefit outweighs the risk. In the case of uh, hydroxychloroquine, specifically, the, the benefit remains to be demonstrated. The risk is there, and the risk is pretty small. So uh, I can understand why it might be used in an extreme situation. We're all awaiting the results of the randomized trials. If an event like TORSAD happens, which and, and that happens in critically ill patients in intensive care units uh, fairly frequently, um, most ICUs, all ICUs will know how to take care of it. And, and I hope we don't see very much of it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Roden. I, I know that there are so many things that are unknown in this uh, pandemic. But we really are lucky to have you share your wealth of experience and knowledge to help us minimize the risk of this particular adverse drug event. So thank you again. Thank you for asking me, Mariel, and uh, happy to help anytime. Today, we had an extraordinary podcast with Dan Roden 
whose life work has been around the development of proarrhythmia secondary to drugs. We're lucky that we could learn from his experience, and I would encourage you to pass along knowledge of this podcast to your colleagues. Please return online to AHA Professional Heart Daily for additional podcasts planned for this series to include COVID-19 in patients with diabetes, pulmonary hypertension, and other concurrent cardiovascular diseases. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. For more information, please visit us at professional.heart.org.